If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. We're beginning to see people who are coming to us with trauma from the Second World War, even from the First World War, even though they had not experienced those things, the trauma has been carried down in their family. So, you know, these things carry on not just on the, the people who experience them, but down the generations as well. That was Keith Lowe reflecting on the impact of the Second World War on the later 20th century. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with the historian and author Keith Lowe, whose 2017 book, The Fear and the Freedom, considers how the Second World War affected subsequent societies. He spoke to our website assistant, Rachel Dinning, just after having completed his talk at our 2017 Winchester History Weekend. Would you mind just giving us a bit of a summary of your book and what it was about? Okay, Uh, so my book is about... Uh, the Second World War and how it still affects us today. So um, it not only describes the immediate effects of the war, but also the long-term, you know, how did it change the world in terms of the way that the cities were all rebuilt? Suddenly there's new architecture everywhere. Um, How does it affect uh, philosophy, art, uh, literature, law? International law was completely changed after the the war. We got got the Cold War came out of the war. So suddenly you have these superpowers and the whole of the rest of the 20th century is dominated by these two powers. Um, We're seeing lots of things going on in North Korea and North and South Korea at the moment. There is only a North and South Korea because of the Second World War. So... Uh, the book charts as many of these changes that were created by the Second World War as possible, and it looks at it from the point of view of an individual who experienced that, um, also their community, and also the wider world. So it's several layers of experience from 1945 through to today. Whilst you were writing your book, what was the most interesting aspect of it for you? I'm kind of a grim person. I mean, I'm not in everyday life, but I'm, I find myself drawn to um, the dark side of human nature um, just because it's difficult and I don't think we look at it enough and, uh, and I think we should. So some of the stories told by perpetrators, people who did some really awful things, who were able somehow to then face up to that and, and, and look at themselves and think, what the hell have I done? Those are the stories that really got me. Those are the, uh, the, I think those are the most powerful chapters in the book. Um, would you like to give us an example? 
Well, the, the um, main example I have in the, near the beginning of the book is is a, a Japanese doctor called Yuasa Ken, who was a vivisectionist. I mean, he he took these Chinese peasants and operated them on on them alive. You know, cut them up. He performed a brain extraction on one person. General anatomy lessons to inform um, other other medics in his hospital, and he did these things without any regard for the people he was operating on, didn't see them as human beings, saw them, he said, in his own words, as garbage, as waste. And it was only after the war, when he'd been locked up by the communists, that he, he finally got a letter from one of his victims' mothers saying, I, I know what you did, and I, I had to cycle after that van that had taken my son and I've discovered that you know, he was in the hospital being dissected alive by you. And I can't forgive you and I want the, the Chinese government to punish you. He read that letter and it changed his life completely. He oh suddenly realised what it was that he had done. And he devoted the whole of the rest of his life to trying to uncover Japanese crimes and say, look, we should all stand up and say, this is what we did. His story was amazing. His story really, really touched me. That's incredible that that one moment just flicked a switch in his brain yeah. and he saw everything that he did in a completely different way. Well, light. I mean, it was, it was in a context. He'd been in prison for a couple of years. He'd been told by the, the communists to confess his crimes, which he'd kind of done half-heartedly. But it wasn't until he got that letter that he suddenly actually realised what it was he'd done. I wonder if there was sort of a process of whilst he was committing these horrific crimes... When you said he wasn't thinking of them as human, um, and then yeah. it, it, later on there comes this sudden realization. Absolutely, that's it. He he he, he said that um, before he got that letter, he couldn't even picture the faces of these people. And afterwards, when he was sitting in his sort of gloomy prison cell for a couple of years after this, reflecting on these things, he suddenly began to remember the faces of these men. Um, the look of terror on their faces when he began to operate on them. And suddenly they became human beings. He realised they had families, they had communities, they weren't just pieces of meat to operate on. Awful story, but but really powerful. And, and I think it tells us a lot about our, our, all of our communal psychology, the way we deny things, the way we don't like to look at things that are difficult, you know? And also how things stay with us for years and years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's the same with soldiers suffering from shell shock. Some of them have been affected by that for their whole life. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to ask a little bit about mental health after the war. Was this largely ignored for a long time? Well, well, no. Um, yes and no. I mean, people had to get on with their lives. And so there was a lot of just, let's just ignore this, brush it under the carpet and get on. But at the same time, there were a lot of developments came out of the, the war, as, as happened in, after the First World War. Group psychology, for example, was really born in this era after the Second World War, during the Second War and afterwards. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, th I think, as with anything, it takes time before the people are able to talk about the traumas they, they've experienced or the terrible things they've done. You, you can't necessarily do it immediately after the, the event. But over the years, um, these things eventually come out. And I was just talking to a, a, it was a psychologist in the, the audience today who was saying, I am discovering exactly the things that you're talking about in your book. We're, we're beginning to see people who are coming to us with trauma 
you know, from, from the Second World War, even from the First World War, even though they had not experienced those things, the trauma has been carried down in their family. So, you know, these things carry on not just on the, the people who experience them, but down the generations as well. That's really interesting. Like, how do you think that works, this trauma being passed on through generations? Well, a traumatised person will act in a way to their family that is different to a, a person who's not traumatised. So their children will grow up knowing that there's this, this atmosphere and not necessarily being able to, to name it, but knowing that there's something wrong. And so they sort of internalise their parents' panic or anxiety or, or, or depression or guilt, or, and, and they carry it around with them. I mean, there are lots of cases of, especially in the Jewish community, where people have had have nightmares about the Holocaust. So they didn't experience the Holocaust. Their parents didn't even experience the Holocaust. It might be their grandparents, but they still carry this anxiety around with them. Oh, how fascinating, because obviously their grandparents would have maybe passed on their feelings through the atmosphere just in the home. It's all sort of happening in the home. And then that's continued through the generations. Absolutely. And, and, and that applies in all kinds of, not just the Holocaust, but you know, in, in Poland, in the, which was devastated during the war, people, whole communities wiped out. You have similar sort of, there's, a, there's an atmosphere in some places where things, you just know things aren't quite right, but you can't necessarily put your finger on it. It's, it, it goes back to the, the traumas that those communities had during the war. One thing that I found interesting um, that you, I think you told us in your Q&A, um, you mentioned how after the war, um, the, the idea of a utopia came up in science. And I found that quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that, do you think that was prompted by the war, that this idea of utopia, you know, we've won the war? Yeah, not just science. There are all kinds of utopian ideas. You know, we, the war was over at last. You know, we, we could now rebuild on, on the, the, the sort of rubble of the old. We could rebuild a new society. This was a, a very common thing, not just here, but all over the world. Um, people really thought they could build something new. And um, in terms of the science, there was loads of scientific discoveries, which were not, not necessarily even discoveries, but, but applications of, of science that had never been used before. In, in like, So, for example, we had... Penicillin had existed before the war, but it was the war which produced this huge push to produce vast amounts of the stuff. So suddenly we had all these antibiotics. This was going to save the world. Suddenly we would all live forever. Um, we had rockets. We had jets. You know, we were all going to go on holiday to the moon. <laughs> we were all going to drive around in nuclear-powered cars. These were ideas that people genuinely thought could happen. World peace was going to happen. The, the, the war had ended. We'd learned our lesson. We were now going to create a world government which would see, you know, see us uh, through abolishing war altogether. People believed these things in 1945. Kind of, it's kind of sad, really, that, that they've sort of died a death ever since then. I was going to ask, actually, so the immediate aftermath of the war, did people very much... You, I mean, you just said it yourself. Um, there was an idea of a sort of global identity. Yeah. W- yeah. What point did this start to disintegrate, do you believe? Well, you could argue, actually, that it started to disintegrate as soon as it, as soon as it came up. I mean, the idea of the world as a, as a unit, this sort of global unit, was, was a pre-war thing. There was the League of Nations, um, but that had 
failed, you know, and it was demonstrably failed. But after the war, we, we created the United Nations and pretended that it was a brand new organisation, no precedence for it or anything. And, uh, and people really thought then that it would be different from the, from the um, League of Nations. But there were plenty of people who would turn up to UN meetings and protest, saying, no, this is the end point of this organisation is going to be exactly what we're experiencing today, fragmentation, because it's not a world government, it's the United Nations, and it's nations are the, uh, are the units that people um, focus on. So given the fact that nationalism was a thing that led to the Second World War in the, in the first place, they were saying, this is just going to happen again. So you, know, so you can argue that 1945, at the same time that they were talking about a world government and peace for all mankind, simultaneously there were people saying exactly the opposite, this is all going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Is there also, are we quite Eurocentric when we think about the World War II as well? Because it obviously it affected so many countries outside of Europe, but mm. is there a tendency for people to sort of say it's a Euro- European war in a way? It's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and not only here, in America, they, they concentrate a lot more on, on Europe than they do, even though they were simultaneously fighting on their other coast against the Japanese. And, and so were we. I mean, the, the um, army in Burma, the British army in Burma are the forgotten army that were even called it at the time. We concentrated far more in Europe and we still do when we remember things. But the war affected the whole world. I mean, I've got chapters in the book about Venezuela, about um, Kenya, um, all these places that are far away from the actual fighting, but were still really affected by the things that were happening, you know, even though the, the events were happening far away from them. So why do you think that we don't include them in the sort of narrative that we have? Why do we focus on Europe? Well, we're part of Europe. We're, <laughs> you know, we, we like to focus on ourselves, don't we? So our first... Our first um, loyalty is to say what happened to the British people, then we concentrate on what happened in Europe, and then we look further afield, don't we? Um, but uh, also, I think some of the things which happen further afield are a little bit less palatable to us. So the way we acted in our empire was, you know... Uh, <laughs> Just give me an example. Well, an example is... Um, the sisal plantations in Kenya and Tanganyika and Rhodesia, where, where we um, basically rounded up people and forced them to go and work there. Um, and when they tried to run away, they were, they were whipped, they were forced back. You know, they, they, it was basically forced labour. And now we can condemn that when the Germans are doing it or when the Russians are doing it, or, but, but we were also doing it. And so, you know, let's just remind ourselves of that from time to time. We, we weren't saints either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to talk about ordinary people and their experiences of the war, which I think you focus on in your uh, book. Yeah. So what sort of experiences did the everyday person have? Uh, do you have case study? I think you have well, case this, studies. There's, there's no such thing as the everyday person. I mean, the, the range of experience was, was vast. And what I tried to do in the book is, is take a sort of representative person who went through the themes that I'm discussing in that chapter and show how the war looked from their point of view and show how it affected them later in later life, you know, all the way through to, to the 21st century. Um, so the, the core is always this, the story of a person. And then I expend it out to, well, how did that, how did that 
manifest itself in their community? How did it manifest itself in their, their country and even in, in the continent or, or the world as a whole? So I, I think our experiences and our memory, our communal memory is based on these individual experiences. Our psychology is based on individual psychology. Um, so, you know, you, you have to start with the individual to understand how a group works and how a country works. Okay, so who are the, some of the individuals in your book that you focused on then? Well, I mean, they, they range from a lawyer. Uh, I, I interviewed one of the last surviving um, Nuremberg prosecutors. He's nearly 100 now, lives in, in New Jersey. And uh, um, he's a fascinating, fascinating man. And he, he was there. He was there prosecuting Einsatzgruppen um, officers. Um, I also interviewed uh, an Israeli novelist. I interviewed a, a man who lives here in the West Country who was one of the heroes of the war, he got medals, and he uh, talked a lot about how he wasn't really a hero, he was just some ordinary bloke, and now everyone calls him a hero and he finds it quite embarrassing. Um, I tell the stories of, of thieves, of... of uh, <laughs> um, all, they, they a full range of human experience. I was going to ask, do you... In, in the book, discuss sort of propaganda and the role that it had? Um, I don't as such, but, I mean, propaganda uh, still comes into the things that we remember today. I mean, you, how, how do you define propaganda? There's plenty of stuff which is in newspapers today which refers to the Second World War. And there, there are pictures in the book of, of newspaper front pages where Angela Merkel, for example, is in a, in a Nazi uniform. She's never been in a Nazi uniform. She's fiercely against anything that even vaguely resembles Nazism. But this is the way that people in Greece or, or, uh, or Italy like to portray her because it suits their national interests. Um, likewise, there was a, there's a, a front cover from uh, the Philadelphia, one of the Philadelphia magazines, where Donald Trump is standing with his arm raised in what looks like a Nazi salute. And the headline on the front page is, The New Furor. In other words, a play on words with Fuhrer. Now, I don't particularly like Donald Trump, but he's, he's not Hitler. He's plainly not Hitler. But we still play with these images every day they're sort of in built into our consciousness whether we like it or not do you think there's some aspects of the war that have almost become a bit of a caricature and that we look at we look at things in too much of a simple way oh absolutely absolutely all, all the archetypes that came out of the war are are very black and white you've got your hero you've got your victim you've got the monsters who 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 did all these terrible things um and any nuance between them is very badly um, received by people. They don't want to think, well, actually, some of these monsters might not have been complete monsters. They might have done some good things too. And some of these victims might not have been such innocent victims after all. We don't like those sort of nuances. We like to have things clear in black and white. So this is what we do. We all do it. I mean, I, I do it involuntarily. It's built into our very nature, I think. So we've got sort of a tendency to think of the war in terms of the good guys and the bad guys yeah. with us, the, with the allied powers as the good guys. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But we, makes... we're not unique in that. I mean, this, isn't, this is not just a British thing. This is every country does the same. 
you know, we're, we're no different from any other country in, in the way that we celebrate our successes and our heroes and so on, but kind of brush the other things under the carpet and pretend that they didn't really happen. So why do you think we look at ourselves in such a her- heroic way? Is it because we were the victors? Oh, well, that's a big part of it. And, and you know, heroism was around we did we were heroes we we suffered through the bombing campaigns and so on and and kept our stiff upper lip to a you know to a large degree um these are things that are heroic and and we went back into europe and we helped us to liberate the continent and i mean these are uh, heroic things Mm -hmm. and it's right that we should remember those but it's also right that we should remember the other things as well just to keep our feet on the ground i think so do you mind telling us, you've mentioned a few already, but should we explore some of the things that are perhaps not in the usual narrative, the, the usual war narrative, things that you've unearthed in your recent book, for example? Um, well, there, there, are, there are things that are quite often told, but the Bengal famine, I've got a whole chapter all about the Bengal famine and, and, and what it meant to the people who actually lived through it and the responsibility for it, which which started with the Bengal government, went up to the Indian government and ended, really. The buck stopped with the British government and Churchill. Um, nobody likes to say bad things about Churchill because, of course, he's our symbol of, of British fortitude during the war. But, you know, he was no saint, not, just like none of us are, are saints. So you know, people don't like to criticise Churchill. Um, there are plenty of other things, like... For example, our bombing campaign, we talk a bit, little bit about um, you know, how we bombed Germany and how we were targeting civilians and was that really um, ethically justifiable. But what we don't talk about is the way we bombed our allies. I mean, when we were bombing northern France in order to liberate it, I mean, if you were French, it didn't really make much difference who was bombing you. You were being bombed. We don't talk about that. Is there any area of the book that you would like to talk about that we haven't covered yet? I think the other theme, the other main theme of the book is is the this tension between the desire to become a global community, to look after the world as a, as a unit, and simultaneously the desire to break away from this big unit and, and, and separate yourselves. So... After the war, for example, there was a huge independence movement in, in all the empires around the world. Nationalism was was growing in all these places. But at the same time, there was a, a big movement the opposite direction where you know people were forming confederations like the European Union is the perfect example or the Union of African States and the um, um, Organization of American States and so on. So you've got this tension between the desire to come together to try and work as as a whole, and the desire to break apart. I think, I think that's fascinating. That was Keith Lowe speaking to Rachel Dinning. The Fear and the Freedom, How the Second World War Changed Us, is out now in the UK, published by Viking. It's also available in the US, published by St Martin's Press. And do keep an eye on historyextra.com for details of future BBC History magazine events. Okay, well, that's about all for today, but please do listen in next time for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. 
For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.